My name is Dario Hasenstab, I have a degree in international affairs, and I'm here with Balder Hagrids, a former university professor of mine, as well as an IR consultant. And together, we're bursting the Western bubble. Every fifth episode of this podcast, we will go through the news of the past month and relate to our analysis of our past recordings. If you, as our listeners, encounter any articles relevant to our content, we would be grateful for you to share them with us. This week's episode, we will specifically talk about COVID-19 and income inequality, the protests in Iran, neocolonialism and the COP27, and finally, Turkey resisting Western determinism. Starting with last week's episode, we have already received some comments on our analysis of the Western reaction to COVID-19. I wanted to take this opportunity to talk to our listeners about a report we found this week published in The Lancet. Yes, this is a report that's focuses on which segments of the population are most affected by COVID. And not surprisingly, what you see is that the poorer segments of society are much more affected than middle-class segments. So if you're poor, you typically have a worse diet, your health is uh, not as good as that of other segments of the population. You are more likely to live in small uh, housing circumstances where you are much more easily in touch with others. You don't have a large garden during lockdown or anything like that. And therefore, COVID is going to have a much greater impact on you. Now, what is interesting from our perspective on this, given what we said last week, is that, of course, poor segments of the population typically were more reluctant to impose harsh anti-COVID measures, which is which may sound paradoxical for people who don't think about it. They think, hey, if you as a poor segment of the population, if you are poor and you're going to be more likely to end up in hospital or you're more likely to die because of COVID, shouldn't you want your government to implement tougher lockdown measures or tougher distancing measures or face masks or all those things? But of course, the answer is that if you are poor, you've got so many things to worry about that COVID is just one of them. And like almost everything that's, bad in society you as a poor person are more are used to the fact that you're going to be more affected to it whereas that middle class part of the population that was much less affected by covid um, for them this is the one of the few times that they actually deeply feel threatened and that's why they wanted to impose that lockdown because they didn't have to pay much of the price but they wanted the benefit of greater security and one of the criticisms that we have received for last week's episode, but very constructive was that we, I mean, we we felt the need that we need to focus a lot on the bubble and explaining how all of this came about, but it uh, led to us not being very exhaustive on the damages, on the problems that uh, COVID measures, not COVID in itself, uh, would then would then cause. So um, we thought about um, basically, uh, yeah, coming up with a list, and this is not a conclusive list yet. Uh, feel free to add them. Feel free to send us uh, to send us any suggestions here. Um, but before we start with this list, I think it's always good to start with an anecdote. And Boulder, you have a very powerful anecdote. Yes, this is one of those moments, again, that you don't forget. In the last episode, I mentioned the Lidl anecdote of the military police stopping me in the street. Most of us will have had such an experience, certainly those living in Spain. This one was even literally and um, metaphorically closer to home. Because this was two or three weeks into the hard Madrid lockdown where everyone had to stay at home. And so this was a moment that everyone, the whole society was panicked about COVID. Uh, there was this real sense of 
the need to stay away from everyone because everyone was a danger, especially in understanding that old people were more in danger than young people. So you had to stay away from the elderly if you were young because you could be carrying COVID without having any symptoms, but the older people around you might be affected if you transmitted it to them. I came back from one of my supermarket walks, walked up the stairs of my apartment and um, the floor below me had a uh, wonderful old lady, a neighbor who was well into her 80s. And of course, for the three weeks of lockdown, I hadn't seen her because it was lockdown. Uh, I walk up the stairs. She opens the door while I walk past and she literally falls into my uh, arms crying. And keep in mind how weird this is without a face mask, without anything. Um how weird this was because this was at the height of the panic and fear of old people have to be protected and she and we were supposed to be distancing we're not even supposed to be outside right i'm only coming back from supermarket and she falls into my arms and what happened what it turned out to, to be the case is that her sister had been dying and died a few days before that moment happened um something that obviously i didn't know anything about because i hadn't spoken to her her sister had died, also uh, a woman well into her 80s, and she had died because of an illness that had nothing to do with COVID. But my neighbor had not been allowed to visit her sister on her deathbed, and now she was not allowed to go to the funeral because of COVID. And it was a combination of anger and sadness. Sadness for not being able to say goodbye to her sister, and anger for a government telling her that she couldn't go, even though she just wanted. She said, I don't care if I get COVID. I just want to see my sister. I want to see, say goodbye to my sister. And she wasn't allowed to. And to me, that was such a powerful moment of this, 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 this woman being so, uh, such a good example of why COVID measures were wrong, because it takes away agency from the individual. It causes a lot of individual pain. Simply, um, taking away any possibility for people to make their own choices. And her choice would have been at that moment to visit her sister and certainly to go to the funeral of her sister, even if that meant that she would get COVID. And people should be allowed to make that choice, right? Mm -hmm. And this is basically the start to um, our list. And we're, we're starting with the psychological costs of staying at home. And I mean, the most obvious one for me as a young person is uh, that you don't have any social interactions. Which which is huge. And, and you can see this still in, um, in, in a lot of people of your age and slightly younger that are still very much affected by that moment, right? Then there is the uh, psychological and security cost of not seeing faces, right? So you... You walk through society with uh, when you have those masks and everyone is potentially a threat, which changes the way that we deal with others. Then um, there is uh, the, the psychological cost of young children, younger children who are not able to go out, who are not able to play in the playground, who are not able to visit their friends, which if you're a six or seven or eight year old child that is hugely impactful you it, it's it's an important part of your development and all of a sudden society tells you stop your development you're not um you're gonna have to wait with being a child for weeks or months on end because this goes beyond lockdown of course mm. and then in another part of that cost on children and on children's development is obviously the educational cost is children falling behind in school there's the uh, there's 
a, a lot of evidence for this that that even now children, teenagers, and people who are about to go to university are actually behind in their development compared to what you would expect. We mentioned this, by the way, last week. This is not so much a case for the upper middle class. This is very much a case for lower classes. There's a similar cost to higher education, even though maybe psychologically um, a 20-year-old can deal with it better than a 12-year-old. But uh, students at universities missed out on proper education in the way that you would expect them to receive it. And uh, we ourselves have been experiencing that, me on the professor side, you on the student side. Uh, it is very clear that we have forced a young generation to essentially give up a lot of their personal educational development for the greater good. Mm. And then there's also the health costs aside from COVID. So not talking about what can COVID itself do to my body, but again, what do the measures of COVID do to my body? I, I, exactly. Even, and this was briefly mentioned last week as well, but uh, for as long as I live, there are government advertising programs to encourage all of us to go out and, and, and walk and run every day and play sports because of the importance for our body to be active and not sit at home. And all of a sudden we say, you know what, all of that thing that we told you for the past 60 years, forget about it because now COVID is more important. Of course, there's a serious health cost. There was weight gain um, because of lack of exercise and also practical issues such as postponing other treatment uh, because of COVID, right? People who had long-term issues that really required medical attention either couldn't get it because of rules that only emergency cases would be helped or were afraid to go out and were afraid to go into hospitals or see the doctor. So you remember this because um, I, during, during, during the, I mean, when Germany never had a real lockdown, um, but, but during that period, I uh, fell in the garden and, and hurt my foot a little bit. And I was like, you know what, let's go to the emergency room. It was the best emergency room visit of my entire life um, because it was, it was empty and the people working there were basically waiting for anyone to come and to, uh, to have something to do. And so I got special extra special treatment um, and I was quick, quick in and out. Well, usually for a, for a sprained foot, you, you, you have to wait hours. So yeah, that was, uh, that was a very nice one. And so what you see here is an interesting combination of the psychological costs, because a lot of this was people essentially being too scared to go out with the medical costs, right? And that's what you see a lot, that these things come together and create a very, very real problem for society. Yeah, and with this moving on to the political costs, um, there were a lot of red lines crossed, a lot of them. A lot of, and, and, and people think too easily about these things. So a, like, as we said about democracy quite a few times, sometimes people think that democracy is about simply having elections, but really what democracy is about is respect for traditions, respect for institutions, respect for knowing what you are and aren't supposed to do in a democratic system. And by setting precedents, by giving authorities enormous powers, um, by not actually having a proper political oversight in place, because parliamentary parties are too afraid to go against the grain. And if you do, then you're going to be put in the populist um, camp of society. That meant that we've now, we've now opened the door to future abuse because we have made ourselves cross those red lines and become more used to things that we should never ever get used to um, then you've got uh, 
the political costs of not sufficiently identifying or recognizing the needs of the less powerful segments in society. Again, the poorer classes, the politically less visible classes, who then gets pushed into populism. And it's not a surprise that populist parties have done really well out of COVID, not at the moment itself, but in the year or two afterwards, because they were the only voice that seemed to somehow talk about those large groups of disenfranchised, politically disenfranchised people. And then there's, of course, the loss of uh, our trust in uh, expertise. The idea of just simply pushing the medical world to make decisions that have an impact way beyond medical questions, political, economic, sociological questions, uh, have turned medical experts, but experts in general, into a political tool, right? Rather than having anonymous experts advising a government and a government taking responsibility. Now it was the government saying, hey, we're just following experts. And thereby it politicized the experts, meaning that we as a society have a more strained, more difficult relationship with expertise and with people who are supposed to tell us how the world works. Yeah, I think the best example here is the US medical expert, Anthony Fauci, who for the one one half of the country is a saint, and for the other half of the country, he's the devil. And that is awful. That is awful to have an expert become a political figure like that. Because that's the last thing you want in a well-run society. Experts should give their expert analysis to governments. And then governments have to take responsibility. Uh, and, and that is the only way that you can have a system in place where we actually recognize the importance of that expertise. By making Fauci this... There's basically the Democrat versus Republican, COVID denier versus uh, lockdown advocate kind of figure. We have done an awful lot of damage to future experts who might want to pitch in to large societal problems, whether it's the environment or economics or it doesn't have to be the medical world, right? Mm. And moving on on our list, there's also economic costs um, and, and not too little. <laughs> <laughs> the economic costs have been severe. I think the, from a macro perspective, the largest economic cost is very visible at the moment um, because by implementing these measures, governments had to delve deep into their own financial structures. They had to uh, use reserves that are typically required to... Um, to keep governments healthy and, and government finances capable of dealing with short-term shocks. By having to compensate large segments of the population for lockdown and for other um, measures, that's, that's uh, keeping sh shops closed, uh, closing um, events and all that, where then the government had to jump in and say, okay, we'll pay you for your loss of income. Governments drained their own buffer. They drained their possibility of responding to future shocks. And what, what is the next shock after COVID? It's the Ukraine war. And immediately you see that governments are now really struggling to compensate for rising energy prices and all those kinds of things. On top of that, you've got inflation, of course, that is directly related to this inability to deal with supply shocks. Um, there's the economic uh, problem of not having the tax revenue, which only exacerbates this, this, this draining of public finances. 
There's the self-employed people who find it much harder to get that government support and who all of a sudden are without a job and are without income. We know that often the poor segments of society are self-employed. Loss of income from the informal markets. Those are those people like people in the street selling goods that, that are semi-legal or maybe illegal, but people very much suffering from the consequences. Um, then there is the homeless people who all of a sudden were without any kind of support from people in the street because there was no one in the street and those homeless people couldn't easily find places to stay at night. Uh, the list goes on. Mm -hmm. And one part that is always forgotten, um, that's the reason why I, I insist on having this here, is it's also part of the economy um, but it's also because for, for them it was very much an economic problem but i think for a society it's very important it's also the arts and cultures is they those were the first ones to be shut down the last ones to be opened up yeah and uh, so theaters shut down um street artists without an income um and and here i absolutely now have to do a shout out to i know people who listen to this uh, good friends of mine corinne and hein because they're two people who actually uh, are in relatively comfortable circumstances and they pushed for the middle class to actually give back to the art, sex, um, uh, art sector uh, through a campaign where they went on TV and they actually uh, were quite successful in, in the Netherlands in generating, if I'm correct, in total like something like 2 million euros exactly for that middle class that now stayed at home, that therefore completely collapsed the art sector. They said, you know what? It's time for us to give back to the art sector, the people who have given us so much joy over the years when everything was normal. Um, let's not forget about them. But you're absolutely right. Typically, um, except for some wonderful people like that, uh, society tends to forget about art and culture in those moments. Mm -hmm. And then lastly, all of these costs were within our societies, within Western societies. But there are also foreign costs attached to this. And I mean, all of these factors obviously apply as well abroad. But having COVID measures here had a cost to countries abroad. Right. And this is the, the one specific thing we already mentioned in the other episode. But, but it is very easy to ignore foreign policy consequences of your domestic policy. And Either you say, look, we don't care about the rest of the world, but in that case, and, and we just care about protecting our own society. But if that is the case, then at the very minimum, you have to take responsibility for now decades of making the rest of the world dependent on your supply chain, right? Western Europe and the United States and Japan have been pushing for a global economic system where everything is very intimately linked with each other. Natural resources get sold in on the short-term markets to China and Malaysia and elsewhere, there they get turned into manufactured products. Those manufactured products get then sold in Europe or in the United States. That is a, if you like, neoliberal geopolitical system that the West has been pushing. The moment COVID hits and those Western countries who've been advocating for the system shut down their markets, say, hey, for a moment, we have to take a pulse here. They're absolutely responsible for the hundreds of millions of people who are affected by that at the bottom of that supply chain. But nobody really cares about that politically because those people don't vote because they live in other countries and they're poor. And could all of, all of this have been solved by doing nothing? <laughs> well, this is a nice... Uh, this is this this is a nice reference to the article I also wrote at the time called "The Art of Doing Nothing." 
we find it as human beings very difficult at moments of crisis to do to go into this cost benefit analysis right to think rationally about things we're in a panic we feel that we're in a fight against some evil in this case against the evil virus and we find it very difficult to take a step back and say if we don't know the consequences of our actions maybe we should wait with taking action certainly with drastic action right if you if your house is on fire and you've got a liquid next to you and you don't know if that liquid is water or oil it's probably better not to throw that liquid onto the fire right you first want to figure out what kind of liquid it is the same with the measures we took we just took the measures out of a panic without actually having a serious cost benefit analysis and here it is probably important to remind people of two things first of all when we talk about covid calls something in most cases we mean the measures of covid cost something covid costs the death of people who are affected by the virus and covid cost uh, overflowing icus and covid uh, cost people being ill but beyond that covid didn't uh, cause more poverty covid didn't cause uh, psychological trauma at least not to a serious extent it was the measures of COVID that did those things. And we need to distinguish between that. So whenever in a newspaper someone says, because of COVID this happened, no, because of our actions against COVID this happened. And that distinction is not sufficiently made in the media, still nowadays, not um, from what I can see. And if you then have that cost-benefit analysis and you try to balance it, then it's not just a matter of saying, we need to fight this enemy. We need to um, defend ourselves against COVID deaths. It's also to say, okay, our measures, not COVID itself, but our measures, how much do they help and how much do they harm? And actually, the, the reality is that we didn't even know how much the measures helped. We knew that COVID was a problem, but we still don't know exactly to what extent lockdown has actually um, reduced the number of COVID deaths. They probably reduced them by some amount, but by how much, we do not know. And so we don't know what the positive consequences of our actions are, but we can see the negative consequences of our actions and the fact that in that situation, the cost-benefit analysis isn't like, let's wait and not do anything because we don't want to make things worse, is a terrible indictment of our choices over the past two and a half years. And I believe that this sufficiently uh, covers the costs and the damages of uh, COVID measures, um, something that, again, has been requested by our listeners. And with this, uh, moving on to the next part um, that we want to recap from something that happened last month, um, because we only found this following report this month. Um, this report is from the beginning of 2022, uh, from March, and it is a report by the European Central Bank on economic inequality and public trust in the European Central Bank. And uh, so this report has some very valid analysis, um, some very yeah, good observations about uh, yeah, how economic inequality leads to public distrust. Um, and there were a few conclusions uh, from this report that we would like to read out and then comment on them because it's very telling of the Western bubble and its implications. Uh, so starting with the first one, Income and wealth inequality have risen in many advanced economies over recent decades, and the pandemic may further increase uh, existing economic inequalities. 
Right, and that is very much in line with what uh, we have dis- been discussing in this this podcast series already. And it is not surprising, right? Uh, we know that the measures of the pandemic, again, not the pandemic itself, not the co- COVID virus itself, but the measures have been particularly bad for the poorer groups within society. And this is already part of a very long-term decay of Western society. And it is a decay because at some point it collapses the very liberal foundations of who we want to be. And then the second uh, conclusion was that tentative evidence suggests that higher income inequality, as well as associated perceptions, may may matter for public trust in the European Central Bank. And this exactly is what is the danger of these increasing income inequalities. At some point, people do not feel recognized anymore by those who are governing them. At some point, there's too much of a distance between the political and economic elite, or maybe just the upper class, let's say the top 50% of society, um, compared to the bottom 50% of society who feel that their interests are not being hurt, let alone being defended. And as a result, obviously that eats away at the trust uh, that we have in, 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 in our institutions. Our institutions in a liberal democratic society do not depend on military power, they do not depend on anything but the idea that we're all in it together. And more and more people feel that they're not all in, in it together and, as, and that these large institutions such as the ECB only work for the agendas of the top income levels. Exactly. And, and what you just said is already the, the third conclusion from, from this report uh, that we want to read, uh, wanted to share with you. However, inequality appears to play a role not only in citizens' evaluations of the ECB, but also in the evaluations of EU institutions more broadly. Of course, the ECB is just one example. Most people don't even know what the European Central Bank does in, in, in any serious detail. But what you, what you see is that people believe that all those institutions, whether it's at a local national level, the, the national governments, or whether it's the European institutions, that they simply do not help their own personal lives and that they, even worse, that they actively work against their own personal interest. And that is not just perception, right? There, there is a serious point there that institutions in Europe have been failing to protect those who need to be protected and who need, need to be kept on board if you want to think of our society as a ship. For the ship to go forward, you don't want people to fall out of the ship because at some point it leads them to be completely disconnected from anything we do. And the last conclusion from this report that we're also going to add to the post description, so feel free to read it yourself, um, we want to share is, and this is not really a conclusion, this is more a recommendation, and this goes back to uh, something we've discussed previously of why we don't provide solutions. Um, but this is just a, a recommendation, um, and I'm going to leave it at that because I don't want to comment anymore on this. Efforts to improve public understanding of the ECB's mandate and tasks may help foster trust in the institution. Yeah, Uh, so let's implement a marketing campaign that's going to solve the issue, right? Whereas the the real issue, as very, very succinctly and very well delivered in the rest of the report, is income inequality is bad for trust in institutions. So let's do something about income inequality. That would be the, the... the serious conclusion from all of this, but instead, because that is too tricky and that 
you know, there's a real resistance to taking the necessary steps to delve into what causes um, income inequality in the first place and how we can remedy that. Instead, someone felt, okay, we need to put something in there, something that's politically a little bit neutral, that is not too confrontational. Let's say that we have to improve public understanding, which is, of course, nonsense. It is, it, it is pablum. It, and I really wonder whether the authors, when they wrote this down, knew that because the authors did a really good job in, in an easy-to-understand way, described the fundamental problem and it just feels like at the end they came together and said, oh, we need some, we need desperately some kind of recommendation. What do we put? What do we put? Marketing. That's what we need. And I think that this sums up um, the, the part in economic inequality. And uh, yeah, it's, again, it's one of the episodes that we've, we've done in the past month. I think it was one of our better ones. And uh, with this, then moving on to the next topic that we want to cover, um, the Iran protests. And uh, to be honest, I wasn't particularly um, uh, planning on, on covering this again because we have covered the Iran protests in our last recap episode, in episode 15. And we've talked about Iran in episode 2 uh, with regards to the uh, Iran nuclear deal. However, a, a listener of us um, and also a friend of mine um, contacted me uh, two weeks ago saying that, hey, you should really do an episode on Iran and the protests there because there needs to be more attention brought to the topic. There needs to be more of a discussion on it. And um, I personally personally have to say that, yes, we're going to bring some attention to it, but maybe not in the way that people in the West supporting the protests would like, because for us, this is very much about Western values and not necessarily about the direct protests in Iran. Yeah, so this is within the context, again, what we've mentioned before about our, in our Western bubble, us thinking, feeling almost, rather than thinking, that every country that is somehow authoritarian is only one step away from becoming like us, right? So the, the, the bubble here is very clearly visible, where we seem to think the only thing that keeps Iran from becoming like us is a few mullahs and um, the Ayatollah, and only if... The only thing that is needed is a, a quick, easy to implement revolution against it, and Iran will become Switzerland um, in terms of politics and in terms of uh, you know values and all that, which is of course a complete misreading of where humanity goes. And you can only think that if you believe somehow that the West has this magic formula that everyone wants to copy, which is obviously not the case, even if authoritarian regimes were to have a revolution um, that has that absolutely does not mean that they then become western liberal according to our moral values and then what is because and there's a i see it everyone's social media and also in the news iran protests uh we're getting there you know something is happening I mean, apart from the fact that I don't believe it has a lot of impact, if you share your sympathy, I mean, you can do that for yourself, share your sympathy with, with, the, with the protests in Iran. Um, I think that's a very valid thing to do. But then in, in a real case, what's the value of Western involvement here? Yeah, so that's the thing. It's, it's one thing to have a perspective on something, even though there we have to always be very careful because we're not particularly, typically, unless you're an Iran expert or you've got Irani friends or you've got an Iran family, we know much less about these things than we'd like to admit, right? We hear something about women being oppressed, which from certainly from our Western perspective 
that is certainly the case in Iran. Um, we hear something about that and we believe that that gives us enough of a basis to have that individual judgment. Whereas, you know, why, why would we even go there? What is the value of me individually taking a moral stance on some society that I don't really understand in any serious detail? So that by side, it's another thing for you to say, I don't want to work with an Irani company um, or I don't want to travel to Iran as a tourist because I feel uncomfortable with that. That's fine. At a practical level, um, the historical evidence clearly suggests that whenever the West gets desperately involved in a situation such as Iran or such as the Arab Spring or such as politics in Iraq, it either has very little effect or it has a counterproductive effect. The, 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 the fact that all these Europeans and North Americans are tweeting out, I'm, I'm supporting Iran, I'm there with Iran, and uh, at least with the Iranian women, I'm there supporting the, the calls of the protest in the street, actually it doesn't make much of a difference at a practical level for the Iranis who are actually involved in those protests, and it could even lead to the authorities saying this is a foreign conspiracy. These are foreigners that are pushing for this narrative. It's the evil Americans who want us to change, but we, Iran, are an independent, sovereign country and we, sh we shall not be bullied by the West. So, typically in these situations, all this outrage in the West either doesn't have an impact or it has a counterproductive effect on the situation in the ground. So why not just stay a little bit away from it? And there's, of course, this new colonial element here. Yes, this is what we've mentioned in the episode on neocolonialism. There is this sense that we are the arbitrators of morality in the West. And as a result, even though we don't actually own our colonies anymore, we can still judge whether our colonies are doing the right or the wrong thing. And maybe a, a good way to to think about this is just in a hypothetical scenario because China typically doesn't do this kind of thing. But what if China all of a sudden starts a whole movement about the way that a certain group in Spain or the United States or Germany is being treated? The Germans and the Spanish and the Americans would be outraged. China, who are you to judge us? Why are you, you don't even understand us? But that doesn't happen. It only happens from the West to the other side, right? It's the Western countries because they believe they have a right to judge other societies and to be involved in other societies and to try to control other societies. Because make no mistake, even though you and I, Dario, at a personal level, might be very sympathetic to the difficult situation that women in Iran are in, us actively getting involved in that conversation is us trying to control it. It is us telling Iran, you have to change. And that has such a deeply neo-colonial root. Um, the idea that we are even allowed to do that, right? Let alone that we actually, from a practical perspective, choose to do it. See, and I don't mind if people on the individual level decide that, I don't know, maybe it, it helps them or they believe that they will help the protest, uh, protests in Iran if they post about it or if they speak out about it. Um, because they don't have to be aware of the negative consequences that they are, at least not to the extent that specialists, experts, or my favorite group, <laughs> journalists have to be. 
And then despite the analysis that they should have um, and the knowledge that they should have, they kind of giddy with excitement. And so just before recording this, we basically typed uh, into Google Iran protests. And we'd just like to read out three headlines from three different news outlets um, that reflect <laughs> that reflect the Western bubble here. Uh, from Euronews, Iran protests. What caused them? Are they different this time? Will the regime fall? Uh, the conversation. Iran, the hijab protests are now massive, but a revolution will need the military to change sides. And lastly, from the Wall Street Journal, is a second Iranian revolution on the horizon? It is, it is, it's palpable from those headlines. And then if you read the articles, then it becomes even clearer that everyone in the West is hoping for this revolution, that they don't really understand themselves, but it is, there's this sense of, oh, they are becoming like us. Uh, and now we can feel good about ourselves because we can choose sides in this. Uh, we can we can push, we can contribute to being part of the Iranian revolution, even though the only people who will benefit or pay the price for that revolution are people in Iran themselves, right? Uh, and yet the media doesn't deal with the self-reflection of, hang on, um, shall we just wait and see what the Iranians decide to do? And I mean the Iranian population in the end, this is a large country where the population can make their own choices. And if a revolution take play, takes place, we will cover it. But let's not speculate on it. Instead, um, the media speculates about it all the time because they desperately want that revolution to take place. They will not have to pay the price for that revolution, but they can feel good about themselves because they are the moral arbiters of who is right and who is wrong worldwide. Mm -hmm. And I think because we already talked about neocolonialism, uh, let's move on to the next topic we want to cover. And that relates to our episode 18, where we talked about neocolonialism. Um, but this time we would like to relate it to the COP27, the climate conference that's currently taking place, at least at the, at the time of the recording of this episode. Um, and here we would like to, uh, you know what, I, I, think, I think I would just like to give two facts uh, from an article in the New York Times. 23 rich developed countries are responsible for half of all historical CO2 emissions, while more than 150 countries are responsible for the other half. Yeah, and then if you calculate this on a per capita basis, because this is already bad enough, but per capita it's even worse. So if you each individual in, in those 23 rich countries is way more responsible for CO2 emissions and their ancestors way more responsible than individuals in those 150 countries um, and then therefore it is painful to see the west still ha working hard trying to negotiate with the developing world right trying act as if we're all in this together so it's it's a little bit this attitude of yeah yeah i, I we know that we've been responsible because those 23 countries of course are majority uh from for majority maybe even completely western we are responsible for this mess that we're in we understand that we've we've done a lot a lot a lot in contributing to climate change much more than you have but that was in the past now we have to work on it together you stay poor a little bit longer so that we don't um uh, that we don't have to face a destruction of our beautiful planet we'll stay rich We'll, we'll, we'll pay a little bit of our, of our wealth, but not too much, please. And that way, together, we can solve the problem, which is 
it's not just hypocritical, it's also completely myopic in terms of how to actually solve the problem. If you are serious about climate change and if you're serious about personal responsibility, then the only thing that the rich countries in the world, the Western countries in the world should be doing is saying, we made this mess, we are going to clean it up and we're going to clean it up in such a way that it doesn't hamper too much of the economic development of countries that really need to develop economically because still they've got significant large segments of their population living in poverty. Um, but that kind of taking of responsibility would involve recognizing uh, the dirty little secret, namely that this would be a significant uh, have a have a significant cost on our consumptive patterns in the West. It would mean a significant economic price to pay in Western Europe, in North America, not just a little bit, not just a, a small segment of our tax, uh, tax revenue, but we as the West really need to consume less, maybe even um, stop economic growth, which is something that the Club of Rome has been advocating for the past 50 years, if we want to actually deal with the environment in a productive way. Um, it's not just about getting green energy going, it is very much about simply buying less, consuming less, going on fewer holidays, uh, owning fewer cars. But of course, that's a political price that the West is not willing to pay. And instead, we sort of make it sound as if the developing world somehow is co-responsible for any of this. Mm -hmm. And now a little bit of a, of a harder cut to the next topic, um, because I originally uh, I mean we we didn't really talk about Turkey in the last month um, however something that was a reoccurring theme in the last month which is the reason why I brought it up a couple of times to you uh, was uh, Turkish president Erdogan um, and how he has been doing exceptionally well on a foreign policy level in the past month or even in the, in the past half year while the situation domestically in Turkey is definitely not looking well um, Erdogan has been doing exceptionally well on a foreign policy level, much to the surprise of the West. It's interesting, right? Because he's been on a sort of non-democratic path. And from our bubble perspective, that means that you become less relevant in world affairs and that you become less successful in your policymaking. Instead, he's one of the voices that still probably has, together with people like Xi Jinping, also not exactly a liberal Democrat, uh, are the people who have most impact on Vladimir Putin, uh, right? Uh, the, the West has very little to no impact on policymaking in the Kremlin, but Erdogan and um, Xi Jinping in China very much do. Uh, even to a certain extent, Modi from India, who's also on this authoritarian path, does the same. And so what this means is that it is a very clear sign that the world is moving away from this deterministic vision of Western liberal democracy being the only path to global success. Uh, instead, you can have global success without following that path and choosing a more authoritarian system to organize your society. Uh, it's, it's, very, it's a very, very, very good case study for how the West needs to stop thinking in terms of either you're with us or you're against us. If you're not with us, then at some point you're going to have to join us later. That is no longer the world we live in. In fact, if we're not careful, the West is going to be the odd one out and the rest of the world is going to have a much more authoritarian political system in place.
And I think a part of this Western bubble here is also not recognizing this foreign policy success Erdogan is having. Because when I when I talk to talk to my peers and colleagues about this, uh, that for example the Black Sea Grain Initiative, so this initiative that allows Ukraine to export uh, grain uh, to the rest of the world, especially to the developing world, and with this easing global wheat prices, um, Putin wanted to leave that agreement uh, one and a half weeks ago, and Erdogan simply said. No, I, I will. I will continue with this initiative. First of all, strong arming Putin, um, to the surprise of at least myself, that this is that we're now living in a world where this is possible. Um, but at the lack of recognition from the rest of the world that it is Erdogan here who is assuring that part of the developing world is going to is not going to starve to death because they they receive grain, but this receives little to no attention or recognition from the West. It almost seems impossible in our thinking to recognize that authoritarian regimes can actually make a change for the better. And this is exactly what happened in this case with grain. It wasn't because of the United States. It wasn't because of Europe. It was because of Turkey that now millions of people find it easier to um, access food supplies. Even is a huge achievement. But of course, we don't give credit for to, to Erdogan for this because... We don't particularly like him because he's not like us. I mean, it's very difficult. I mean, from a personal perspective, living in Germany, a lot of, uh, well, Turkish origin friends who all, who a lot of them gave up their Turkish nationality because of uh, Erdogan's actions, um, because of the influence he's trying to have on, on Turks uh, living in Germany. So I personally dislike him um, simply for the sake of my friends. But you have to be able to recognize uh, his success. Yeah, and I, I think in that sense, we are all, and I, I, of course, have these personal reactions as well. We're all victim of the Western bubble, right? The, we are all told that we need to have opinions about people, that we have to like or dislike them all the time. And instead, maybe we should stop doing that, however hard it is, and focus on looking at the facts of what they are. Now, one fact domestically, and this also applies to Xi in China, but certainly applies to Turkey, domestically, authoritarian regimes are often unstable. Look at Iran, for example, there, there are threats to the regime, right? So this is one of the reasons why in this podcast, despite appearances, we keep on insisting that the system that we would like to see in the long term is liberal democracy. But that is not the same as saying that liberal democracy is the only way to go and that liberal democracy somehow is morally always better than authoritarian regimes. You cannot make that case. Um, despite the fact that authoritarian regimes do have a volatility and it could be that tomorrow Erdogan falls and someone else comes to power in Turkey and changes the whole system once again, maybe it is time for us to stop making those moral judgments and just look at the world for what it is. And I think that this brings us to the end of our episode 20 of our recap episode of foreign policy last month, where we talked about COVID and the, the damages um, income inequality and how it affects trust in, in public institutions, uh, the protests in Iran, neocolonialism and uh, the COP27, Erdogan and how Turkish foreign policy is currently doing rather well. And I think that this seems like a great moment to end today's uh, recap episode. If you have any questions, comments or regards, make sure to send us an email at thewesternbubble at gmail.com. We will try to incorporate them in our following episodes. Thank you very much to the listeners for joining us today. Make sure to join us again next week when we burst the Western bubble. That is it from my side. Balder, which closing quote did you pick for us today? I thought it would be appropriate to go back to 
one of the two big, big challenges facing our world, uh, one being income inequality, the other one being the environment, and go back to the Club of Rome, which I previously mentioned in this episode, who have been writing about the limits to our growth and literally called their large seminal publication, The Limits to Growth in 1972, and how it is important for us to take economic responsibility for what is happening. And in their publication, their book, uh, they quote Aristotle, who wrote, most persons think that a state in order to be happy ought to be large. But even if they are right, they have no idea of what is a large and what a small state. To the size of states, there is a limit, as there is to other things, plants, animals, implements. For none of these retain their natural power when they are too large or too small, but they either wholly lose their nature or are spoiled.